Well, good morning. Welcome here. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors at Willingdon, and it's my privilege to lead us in the study of God's Word this morning. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 6. If you grab the Bible from the seat back in front of you, that's going to be on page 891. Uh, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1 and, and working through to verse 15. And as you continue turning there, let me just pray for us. So Father, we thank you for this time to meet together as your people. Father, thank you that we can sing songs of worship and praise to you for who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, I pray that as we read your word now and as we study it, that the worship would continue. Father, we'd recognize the things that you've done for us through your son Jesus and our hearts would be filled with gratitude. And so we just pray that you bless this time now, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before we read the text, I'm going to need you to do something for me, and that is to picture yourself in a situation I'm about to describe. So I want you to, to picture yourself uh, maybe at a family reunion or at maybe at church in the lobby or at school, somewhere where you know a lot of people. And I want you to picture somebody coming up to you, someone that you know pretty well, and they start telling you a story. And they're really into this story. They're really excited about this story. And you can tell because they're smiling. They're giving you all kinds of details. They're using their hands to talk. And they're, they're just really going for it. And it's a, it's a nice thing. You're excited that they're sharing with you. But you quickly realize that you've heard this story before. Yeah, and so it's a little bit of a, a situation now that you found yourself in. And I want to ask you the question, what do you do in those situations? Uh, for some of you, you might be the kind of person that's really quick to kind of just, uh, just tell the person, you know what, heard this one before, it's a good story, thanks, but uh, you, know, you don't have to tell me again. You know, some people are bold enough that that's what they're going to do. Probably most of us do the, the, a different method, which is called the smile and nod method, right? So you stand there and you just kind of smile and nod, and, and your mind's going off to other things, and you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or what you're going to do after, and you're just waiting till you hear the end of the story because there's a bit of a punchline, and you got to do a nice reaction at the end, right? So you kind of go, oh, wow, that's, whoa, didn't see that coming, right? Uh, the truth is that most of us, are, we want to be polite people. We want to, you know, be nice to people. But we often don't like hearing the same story twice, especially when we know the ending. And the reason I had you picture this scenario in your head is because we're going to be talking about a story from John chapter 6 that probably a lot of people in this room have heard before. If you've already turned there, you'll see that the text says that Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, we're going to be looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And if you think about all the miracles that Jesus did, this is probably one of the most iconic ones that, that we have. It's the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. It's, it's a story that most of us have probably heard in some context, whether we've actually read it or just kind of have seen uh, visuals of it. And, and most of us uh, will have heard it many times when we grew up in church. Now, even if you haven't grown up going to church and you've never heard this story before, uh, and you might be thinking, you know, I haven't heard this story. It's, I, I don't know the ending. Well, the actual title of the story actually gives a lot away for you uh, just by looking at that, right? So you read, Jesus feeds the 5,000. You can probably guess what happens in this story. And so my dilemma is I'm preaching a story that most people have heard before and everybody knows the ending to. Now, I got to tell you, if this was a story that I came up with, I'd be pretty nervous right now because I'd expect a lot of smiling and nodding, uh, not in a good way. Uh, but the truth is that this is actually God's word. And the amazing thing about God's word is it doesn't matter how many times you've heard it before, how many times you've read it, there's actually always going to be something new for you. 
there's an amazing quote about John's gospel in particular. Uh, someone once said this, John's gospel is like a pool in which a toddler can wade and an elephant can swim. Uh, so you can picture that for a second. But w- what it's basically saying is that there's something for everybody and you can always go deeper. And so I want to challenge you today, whether you've heard this story growing up your whole life and you've heard it many times before, or even if this is your first time hearing this story about Jesus, I want to challenge you, what would it look like to go a little deeper in your understanding and appreciation of God's word today? So let's dive in together. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. We'll stop right here for a moment, but let's just acknowledge this is an incredible story. I think sometimes, especially if you've grown up in church or especially if you've heard these stories in Sunday school as a little kid and and growing up just hearing the stories, we sometimes forget how incredible something like this actually is. I always say, oh yeah, of course, Jesus fed the 5,000. No, this is an amazing thing that Jesus just did. And so let's kind of just highlight some of the things that we see here. So Jesus is up in the north by the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and they're by themselves, but pretty soon a large crowd of people starts coming towards them because they've seen the miracles that Jesus has done, and presumably they want to be part of these miracles as well. They're looking for healing. They're looking for the miraculous. And so Jesus sees the crowd coming, massive crowd of people, And he turns to Philip, one of his disciples, and he says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread to feed all these people? And John tells us that Jesus did this to test Philip, to see what Philip would say, uh, because, of course, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. Uh, But Philip answers, and he says uh, something interesting. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to you hearing it that way, but the New Living Translation, they say it like this, uh, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them, uh, which is about right. So a denarius was about what uh, an unskilled laborer would be able to make in one day. So if you go to work for the day, uh, you work a hard, honest day's labor, you get one denarius and you take that home and you use that to buy food for your family and, and whatever else you need it. And so you can imagine working 200 days straight, you'd make 200 denarius, but, or 200 denarii, but that's assuming you didn't have to spend money on food or shelter or anything else. And so to actually save up 200 denarii would take a long time of working. It was a good amount of money to have. Uh, you didn't just carry this kind of money around if you were uh, kind of just a common person. And so it's interesting, why does Philip use this amount of money? 
Well, some people suggest that this is maybe all the money the disciples had amongst themselves if they kind of pooled their funds together and they, they kind of got everything together and, and went out and bought food. This is all they could use. Uh, some people think that Philip is just picking a really high number and just to make a point. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, even if we had 200 denarii, which is a lot of money, uh, we couldn't feed these people even a little bit. Now, we don't know what answer Jesus was hoping to hear when he asked this question of Philip, uh, but it doesn't seem like Philip does too well with this test that Jesus has given him. And so Andrew, one of the other disciples, takes a, a stab at figuring out this problem. And he takes a bit of a different angle. He says, uh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And it's interesting to hear about this, this boy in this story because a lot of us have probably given some thought to uh, what this boy was like or, or what the circumstances were with this boy. It's interesting. We actually don't know anything about him other than Andrew says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. It's interesting. I think we often like to picture the boy, you know, bringing his lunch through the crowd and, and saying, you know, here, Jesus, take my lunch and do with it what you will and, and exercising this faith and this generosity. Uh, sometimes I like to picture Andrew saying, hey, there's a boy here with the lunch and all the eyes go to the boy and the boy has the deer in the headlights look like, okay, I guess I'll share it. Well, we don't know if he gave it willingly or reluctantly, but Andrew just seems to offer up this lunch to Jesus. And, and for a split second, I think we're meant to wonder, does Andrew have faith that Jesus can do something with these? There's just a little moment there where it seems like Andrew's onto something saying, you know, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fishes. Does, does Andrew believe that Jesus can do something? I think for a split second, we're meant to believe that. But then, of course, Andrew says, uh, but what are these for so many? In other words, he, he really doubts that this is going to be helpful at all. He's just kind of pointing out something. Uh, there's a boy with a lunch. But of course, what is that going to do with such a large crowd? He asks a rhetorical question. He's not actually looking for an answer. He's more making a statement. But Jesus gives him an answer anyways. Uh, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And then the real response comes in actually what Jesus does next. Uh, Andrew asks, what are these to so many? Jesus says, let me show you. And so the people sit down. Jesus gives thanks to God for the food. And then he starts giving it to the disciples and the disciples give it to people in the crowd. And I guess they start passing it around. And eventually everyone's getting this food that's being passed out by Jesus. And everyone eats as much as they want from the five loaves and the two fish. It's this incredible miracle. And not only that, there's leftovers as well. And Jesus says to the disciples, go collect the leftovers. 12 baskets full is what they take. It's interesting, at this time in, in history, uh, there was actually a really good thing where they didn't waste food like we sometimes waste food today. And, and so if there was leftovers of any kind, there was a, kind of these rules, but basically anything bigger than uh, an olive or something like that, you would make sure you'd save so that it didn't go to waste and you'd have it for later on. And so that's part of what's going on here. But, but keep in mind, Jesus didn't make too much food by accident. Right? It's not as if he's multiplying the bread and the fish and all of a sudden he realizes, oh no, I made too much, let's collect the leftovers. This is something Jesus is doing on purpose to demonstrate the abundance with which he provides. Uh, Jesus doesn't give the 12 baskets uh, by mistake. That's something he's intentionally doing. Now, a lot of people will see in the 12 baskets, the number 12, symbolism of either the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples, something like that. And there's probably something there. But I think most of all, we're not supposed to miss the fact that Jesus does way more than he has to. And when you think about it, it's amazing that there's even more left over than there was to begin with. 
Uh, just this incredible display of abundance. And so now I want you to picture something again. I want, to pitch, I want you to picture yourself being there among the crowds on that day when Jesus does this miracle. You recognize the situation. You recognize, hey, we didn't have any food. Jesus prayed for these five loaves and two fish and he started passing them out. Now we've all eaten as much as we want to and there's even leftovers. I want you to imagine being there that day and I want to ask you the question, what would you say in that situation? What would you say? What would your reaction be if you saw that miracle? What would you say about Jesus if you saw him do something like this? Would you say something like, Jesus must be from God? because only God can do something like this. Would you say, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ that was promised in the Old Testament, he must be that. Would you say, Jesus must be God himself because this is such a mighty act. What would you say if you were in that situation? Maybe you'd say something different. The reason I ask you this question is because I can almost guarantee that none of us in this room would say what the crowd said to Jesus that day. We didn't read it, but in verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. I don't know what you would say when you witness a miracle like this, but I'm pretty sure you wouldn't say that. And so the question is, why would the crowd say something like this? What would prompt the crowds that witnessed Jesus doing a miracle like this to say something as, as strange sounding to us as this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world? I said at the beginning that John's gospel is a gospel where you can always go a bit deeper. And I think what, what we have here is the crowd's response lets us know that there's probably a part of the story that most of us haven't really thought too much about before. Uh, there's something going on here that most of us haven't given too much attention to. And I think once we understand why the crowds react the way they do, it'll actually help us to see this miracle in a whole new light. Uh, to see something amazing that's going on that most of us don't see the first or, or even the hundredth time we read this story. And so let's take a look at what the crowds are saying and why they're saying this. Again, they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Notice that they don't say this is a prophet, right? They don't say just that Jesus is a prophet or he's uh, a, you know, some, they say Jesus is the prophet. They're talking about someone specific here. It's interesting to note as well that this isn't the first time that we've seen this language in John's gospel. You might remember back in chapter one, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. Massive crowds are coming to him. He's baptizing many people. And the religious leaders, they're kind of wondering, who does John think he is to be doing these things? Uh, who is John that he could be baptizing so many people? And they send a delegation of men to question John about his identity. And one of the questions they ask him is, John, are you the prophet? And John says, no, I'm not. But again, this shows us that this question was on people's mind at this time. There was that expectation that somebody would come and be the prophet. Now, it's interesting to know that this expectation actually goes all the way back to something Moses had said over a thousand years earlier. So Moses was a leader of God's people back at the time of the Exodus. And Moses in the book of Deuteronomy had said these words to the people. In chapter 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
Uh, Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. And on the one hand, some people looked at these words and they thought, you know, these are fulfilled every time a prophet in the Old Testament was raised up from among God's people. In other words, any time a prophet legitimately spoke the words of God to the people, this was fulfilled in, in all the prophets we see in the Old Testament. But on the other hand, there was a number of people in a large group in Jesus' day that saw in this prophecy not just a reference to prophets in general, but a reference to a specific prophet like Moses who God was going to raise up. Not just a prophet, but someone who would be the prophet, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that Moses had made. And so the question was, what was this prophet going to be like? What was this prophet like Moses going to be like? Uh, prophets, of course, they were supposed to speak the words of God to the people, and Moses does that. But it's, it's interesting to note that that's not all that Moses does. In fact, when you think about Moses, and if you've heard the story of Moses, probably the first thing you think of is Moses' role in the Exodus when God used Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, when God's people were in slavery, when they were in need of a liberator, when they were in need of a leader, God sent them Moses. And so the expectation was now, as God's people waited for this prophet, this prophet would be someone who not only spoke the words of God to the people, but also someone who was a leader and liberator of the people. Someone who would lead them to liberation once again. And at this time in history, expectations were high because God's people were once again in need of liberation. And so people asked the question, are you the prophet? Is this the prophet? And it's really interesting to note that at this time in history, there were actually people claiming to be the prophet who would lead God's people in, in liberation. There were these movements that started where people would say, the liberation is coming, I'm going to be the one to lead you. And, and these people would try to be the ones to liberate God's people, claiming to be the prophet. Uh, we actually read about some of these people in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 5... Gamaliel is making a speech to the religious leaders and he references a couple of these people who are trying these kinds of things. It says this in Acts chapter 5, 36 and 37. Before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who, were, all who followed him were scattered. And so we see these examples of these movements that would have been uh, with much violence and intensity trying to bring about liberation with a leader claiming to be the prophet that God had sent to rescue his people. Uh, there's a Bible teacher named Richard Bauckham who writes a book about some of these things, and he adds even more examples from the his history of the time. And he also kind of gives a list of things that characterize these movements. And we start to see some of the things that happen in Jesus' miracle compared to this list, and, and things start to kind of really come together. So all these, all these leaders would claim to be the prophet or claim to be a prophet. Uh, they would all take their followers into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, they would promise to show their followers signs and, and wonderful miracles. And they would talk to their people about liberation and freedom. And so you can imagine what it would have been like for Jesus' followers that day. Uh, they're out in the wilderness, all the followers of Jesus gathered around, and Jesus does this incredible miracle, this sign that would have reminded the people probably of what Moses did with the manna in the wilderness. 
And so I think it makes sense that the people would put all these pieces together and conclude Jesus is truly the prophet who's coming into the world. Uh, Jesus is the one that God has sent to save us from our, from our enemies. It's the time of liberation once again. And his timing couldn't be any better uh, because it's the Passover. Now, you might have mentioned or noticed this when we were reading the text in verse 4. It says, kind of almost as a throwaway comment, it says, Now the Passover, uh, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And as we read the text, you probably didn't make too much notice of this because it didn't seem to have really anything to do with what we read. Uh, Jesus, like we said before, he's up north in, in Galilee by the sea, and the Passover was celebrated down in Jerusalem in the south. And so the question is, why would John mention the Passover that's happening over 100 kilometers away in this story of Jesus? And there's probably more than one thing we can say here, but I think one of the reasons was uh, the expectations of the people would have been intensified during the Passover. See, the Passover was the celebration of God rescuing his people in Egypt. It was a celebration of the Exodus. And each year, God's people were called to come together to celebrate, to remember the freedom that God had won for them, to remember the mighty works that, Jesus, or that God had done in the Exodus, and to, and to celebrate and rejoice together as a people. In some ways, you can make a comparison like the, to the 4th of July in the United States in that it was a day or a festival of intense nationalistic and patriotic pride. Uh, this was a celebration of the nation of Israel. This was a celebration for God's people. Uh, but there was a bitter irony about the Passover at this time in history. The Passover was a celebration of freedom and God's people were no longer free. So you can imagine what it would be like going to Jerusalem each year, celebrating the Passover and, and, and praising God for liberating his people, praising God for rescuing his people and giving them freedom. And yet as you're in Jerusalem celebrating freedom, you see Roman soldiers walking through the streets representing this foreign nation that's now over top of you once again. You, you can just imagine what that would be like, the, the intense celebration, but it's, it's also... Uh, it, it's lessened because you're, you're now not free. And you're celebrating a freedom that God gave to the people that the people no longer have. And so each year as people celebrated the Passover, the, the longings of the people, the intense feelings of, of a need of liberation would just increase and multiply. And if there was a time for someone to start a movement, if there was a time for someone to start getting the people excited about liberation, getting the people to act on those feelings, the Passover would be the time to do it because everyone's intensity was at fever pitch. Even the Romans recognized this. And so every year at the Passover, not only the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem, but the Romans would send more troops to Jerusalem because they knew, again, if God's people were going to try something, uh, the Passover would be the time to do it. Because everyone's expectations, everyone's longing for liberation would just be intensified. Uh, throughout the year, you can maybe manage with the fact that you're under the Romans' rule. Maybe you can manage, but, but when it comes to the Passover and when everything's kind of put right in front of you, this celebration of liberation, uh, you, can, you can tell that people want to be free once again. And so here's Jesus in the wilderness with his followers. He does an incredible sign at the time of the Passover. And as if the crowds are thinking, Jesus, you are truly the prophet who's come into the world. You're the one who's going to lead us into liberation. You're going to be the one who does it. We're going to follow you. 
And we actually know the crowds were thinking this because in verse 15, we read that Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but growing up reading this story, that always seemed a little bit out of place to me. So yes, Jesus has just done this incredible miracle. That's true. Uh, but Jesus has done a lot of miracles and the people haven't tried to make him king. Uh, and, and it says they're, they're trying to make him king even by force. So in other words, if Jesus says, no, 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 I don't want to be your king, they're ready to say, no, you're our king, whether you want to or not, we're following you. And, and again, it always seemed out of place to me, but once you realize what they realize, once you realize that they're expecting Jesus to be the one who's going to liberate them, who's going to lead them in this liberation at the Passover, it actually makes perfect sense what they do. Uh, they say, Jesus, you're the one who's going to liberate us. You're the prophet. We're going to make you king and we're ready to follow you wherever you lead us. And, and I think there's a clue that John gives us in, in his narrative that this is what he's thinking. And so in John uh, chapter 6, verse 10, we read it already. Uh, we, we read this and Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Now, when it says the men sat down, sometimes when you read Bible translations and you see the word men, sometimes it's referring to a group of people comprised of, of men, women, children, and it's just a way of referring to a crowd of people. Uh, that's sometimes what the word men will mean in certain Bible translations. Here, it's actually talking about something different. So here, John's using a word that refers to only the male adults in the crowd. And we know this for, for sure because even Matthew in his gospel, he says the number of men that were there was 5,000. And then he says, not counting women and children. And so many people have often noted that the actual number of people at the feeding of the 5,000 would have been much higher than 5,000. Uh, some people estimate even closer to 20,000 when you count the women and children. And so the question has always been, why does John choose this lower number of 5,000 men rather than talking about 20,000 or whatever the number would have been? Uh, even just the way you hear it sounds a lot different. So think about what it sounds like, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, com compared to the feeding of the 20,000. All right, that second one sounds a lot more impressive. And so the question is, why doesn't John give us that higher number? Why does he only list the men that are present? And the short answer is that John doesn't actually tell us why. Uh, but I think if we look at the context, one of the things that John doesn't want us to miss is that uh, look at the size of an army that Jesus could potentially muster if he wanted to. Uh, look at all the men that are present that could serve as soldiers if Jesus wanted to do something. Now, I don't know if you've been following uh, world events at all, but some of you may have seen pictures or, or video footage of the, the caravan of migrants that are making their way through South America right now. If you've seen pictures or videos, you see this massive, uh, massive humanity that's walking through South America. And it's interesting that people are estimating the size of that crowd around 5,000. At least it was that, that was the case when I was studying this week. And so as I looked at these pictures of these 5,000 people marching through the countryside, you just get a sense of how large a group this could actually be. Uh, 5,000 people marching together, it's an intimidating force. And again, I think John's wanting us to see if Jesus wanted to storm Jerusalem and, and make himself king that way, I think Jesus actually has the opportunity to do it here. I think John wants to say if Jesus wanted to become king this way, he actually has an opportunity to do it. The crowd's already. Everything is coming together for the crowds. Everything's coming together perfectly. Uh, they have the prophet like Moses who's going to liberate them. 
It's the Passover, the time for the liberation to happen once again. And finally, all the people are ready. 5,000 men ready to follow their newfound king. And I think the crowd's thinking, Jesus, it's time. This is happening. Everything's coming together. Let's make this happen. We're going to make you king. We'll follow you where you lead us. We're going to be liberated. It's happening now. The crowds have these high expectations. And Jesus dashes them. We read in, in verse 15. It says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, actually, it's not going to happen this way. I'm not going to be king in the way you want me to be king. And so we got to ask ourselves the question, what happened here? What happened that the crowds could have got things so wrong in their estimation of what Jesus was doing? Didn't the crowds recognize what the Old Testament had said about Jesus and what he would do? Didn't they recognize that this wasn't the kind of kingdom that Jesus was going to bring? And I say this a little bit facetiously because sometimes we can give the disciples and the crowds and the first followers of Jesus a really hard time. And when we say things like, didn't they read their Bibles? Didn't they know the prophecies that spoke about Jesus? And I think sometimes we forget that the disciples and the first followers of Jesus, they're trying to figure all of this out first uh, in real time. Uh, they're experiencing this firsthand and they're trying to make sense of everything in real time. You see, they don't, they don't have the advantage we have where we know that Jesus came once 2,000 years ago and while he was here, he fulfilled many prophecies from the Old Testament. And we also know that Jesus will one day return and he's gonna fulfill a lot of prophecies from the Old Testament that were left unfulfilled the first time. And we have this perspective that we know Jesus came once and he did these things. He'll come again and he'll do these next things. The crowds following Jesus, they didn't have that perspective. They didn't have that advantage. And many of them thought, this is all, when Jesus comes, when God's uh, king comes, it's all going to happen at once. It's all going to happen in one shot. And Jesus had to work really hard to teach them that it wasn't actually going to be that way. Uh, But the crowds, they read their Bibles. Uh, They read passages like Daniel chapter 2, starting verse 44. And they read things like this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Those are the kind of verses that the crowds would have, would have read and that they would have meditated on, especially as they thought about being liberated once again. And so I think we can forgive the crowds for having these expectations. Uh, they had actually, I think, good reasons to expect the things they expected, even though they were completely wrong. They had these really high expectations. They had these really specific expectations and Jesus shattered them. And I gotta ask you, doesn't that happen sometimes? We could probably all think of times in our lives when we expected Jesus to do something for us, when we expected God to answer a prayer in a certain way and he didn't. You know, God, I thought if I applied for this college and I was honest in my application and I didn't make things up that that I would get into this school, but I didn't. And and all my friends who who kind of exaggerated on the application and kind of didn't tell the whole truth, they're all going to this school next year and I'm here not being accepted. Or, Or we say things like, Jesus, I thought if I got out of this bad relationship that you would bring someone else into my life who would fill that that void. And you haven't done it yet. 
Or Jesus, I thought if I, if I prayed and I came to church each week and I gave money to the church that my friend would be healed, then you didn't heal him. See, we sometimes have these expectations of Jesus that, that don't come to pass. Your outline says this, Jesus doesn't always do what we expect him to. I remember once I was uh, applying for, I needed a job and, and I was looking for work and I was kind of going through the, the job postings that are out there and I remember seeing a bunch that it weren't really great and then I came across one that was kind of the ideal job for me, I thought. It was just like a perfect fit. Everything that I wanted to do, everything that I thought I was good at doing, it was in this job. And, and I, I filled out my application and I felt like I could give honest answers, but they were still, I felt like it was a really good fit. And I went to this interview and I remember interviewing, just talking to these people and just thinking to myself, oh, I can totally picture myself working with these people every day. Uh, this is an environment I want to be in. And, and I thought the interview went great. I get a call back a couple days later and, and they tell me that they're going in a different direction. And I remember thinking at the time, Jesus, how, how can this be the answer? In my mind, I had a problem. I had prayed for God to give me a job and I prayed specifically for this kind of job at this kind of place. And to me, everything kind of made sense that you know, everything's lining up. This is the perfect way, God, that you should answer my prayer. And God said, actually, it's not gonna happen that way. God doesn't always do what we expect him to. Your outline also says this, but that is actually a good thing. Now, of course, I wouldn't have said so at the time, or if I would have said so, it probably would have been something that internally I was still struggling with. Looking back later, I see how God had something different in store for me, and I'm actually really happy I didn't get that job. Uh, But this isn't to say that we'll always be able to have that perspective. It's not to say that we'll always go through life and say, oh yeah, you know, we understand exactly how God's plan is working out. We understand looking back why God didn't answer our prayer that way or why he answered our prayer this way. We don't always get that perspective on this side of eternity. Uh, sometimes we're left wondering, God, why did you do things that way? I don't think I would have chosen those that way. Sometimes we have a hard time because we think our plan for our life is better than God's plan for our life. And that's something that we, we I think, always are going to struggle with, uh, this idea that, you know, God, this is the way I think we should do it. And God's, I think, sometimes helping us to see, actually, this is the way that, that's actually going to be better in the end. See, sometimes our expectations are wrong, and we need God to help us adjust what we're expecting. Other times we expect actually the right thing, but we expect it in the wrong way. And that's kind of what's happening in our story today. If you think about it, the crowds actually expect all the right things. They just expect them in the wrong way. Uh, Think about this for a second. They were expecting Jesus to be the king of God's people who would liberate them from their greatest enemies at the Passover. And what happens in this gospel? Well, Jesus is the king of God's people who liberates them from their greatest enemies at the Passover. Exactly what they were expecting, not at all in the way that they expected It's interesting that as you look at the language of kingship and kingdom in this gospel, it it comes up at the feeding of the 5,000, and then it doesn't come up again until the final week of Jesus' life as he marches into into Jerusalem. And it's when Jesus stands trial before Pilate that the kingdom and kingship language really ramps up, and Jesus explains what he means by the fact that he's going to be a king. And Jesus says in, in John chapter 18, verse 36, He says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Here, ironically, Jesus the king stands trial. He's condemned to die the death of a slave and a criminal because Jesus is the kind of king that reigns from the cross. And ironically, it's, and, and providentially, it's through Jesus' death that God brings about the liberation of his people. You see, the liberation doesn't come by the crowds storming Jerusalem. It doesn't come by the crowds waging war against the Romans. The liberation comes by Jesus being lifted up on a cross so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's a commentator named Edmund Clowney. He puts it like this. I love this quote. It says, Jesus would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. See, on the cross of Christ, he liberated us from our greatest enemy, and it wasn't the Romans or any other foreign power. It were the enemies of sin and death. So that whoever puts their faith in Jesus can have eternal life with him. Jesus did this at the Passover, but he didn't lead his people to liberation like they expected. Instead, he became the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think to myself, Jesus' followers had some great expectations of what they thought Jesus was going to do. But I'm so glad Jesus didn't do what they wanted to do. I'm so glad their expectations were shattered. Because what Jesus actually had in store was way better than what they could have ever hoped for or imagined. Your outline says this, like Jesus' first followers, we must learn to embrace what Jesus does. It's it's not always going to make sense to us. Often it's not going to be what we would choose for ourselves, but at the end of the day, what Jesus offers and what Jesus does is far better than what we could ever ask for or imagine. And so maybe you're here today and you've heard this before. Maybe you're here today, though, and this is the first time hearing about some of these things. And and I want to just say to you today, This isn't just something that's a nice story that happened thousands of years ago. This isn't just something for people who grew up going to church. This is actually something for everybody who would accept Jesus, anyone who would put their faith in him. Even if you're here today and you say, I've I've never heard this stuff before. I've never been to church. I've never, you know, this isn't my background. Jesus is offering to you salvation today for the first time. He's saying, come follow me. Come follow the king who laid down his life for you. And if you feel God's spirit at work in your heart right now, if you feel God tugging at your heartstrings saying, I I exist, I'm real, I want a relationship with you, I sent my son to die for you, then I I beg you, don't, uh, don't walk away from this place without responding to what God is offering you through Jesus Christ. In fact, in a few seconds, I'm gonna be sharing a prayer that you could pray if you wanna accept that gift of eternal life for the first time. Like I said before, this isn't just for those who grew up going to church. This isn't just for those from a certain background or a certain religious upbringing. This is an offer of salvation that is for anyone who would believe. No matter where you've come from today, no matter where you've been through in your life, no matter what plans you have for your future, Jesus is offering you salvation today. And so if you want to accept that offer of salvation, I invite you to bow your head with me now. And we're going to pray this prayer. And if you want to pray this prayer in your heart to the Lord, I invite you to pray along. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. 
Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, make sure to go to the I Said Yes banner. Come talk to me at the front or one of the other pastors. Don't leave without telling something, someone about the decision you made. And now as we end our time, why don't we all stand to pray uh, one more time. Father God, thank you so much that you, that you don't always give us what we want. Uh, but Father, we, we thank you that you give us what's best for us and that through your son, Jesus Christ, you've offered us the gift of eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to follow you all the days of our life, taking whatever comes at us, knowing that you are with us and knowing that your ways are always best. We thank you for these amazing truths. Help us to live in light of them. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.